Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey, and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had, and I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design Still my favorite is the built structure and interiors. In years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast, and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Dulcie Horwitz. Now, Dulcie has a wonderful architectural firm in the LA area. It's Horwitz Architecture and Design. Her work, you'll find it in Santa Barbara. You'll also find it in the LA area and south of the LA area. Her niche that she works in and the piece that she's so passionate about is residential homes. I was going to say resi, which is what we say in Australia and New Zealand. I was going to say resi, but like it's residential homes. And in there, it could be remodeling or it could be a new home. It doesn't matter which. Her genius is telling the client's story with the architecture. So creating this sort of poetic motion that people live in and pass through. Stolsey, Welcome to Talk Design. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I want to kick off with, at some point, you were this little girl 
and you were living in Illinois and mm. it was all apple pie. And what happened <laughs> from there? <laughs> well, you know, you're right. I grew up in a small town. Actually, the first town I grew up in was like 2000 people. It was one wow. square. I lived there till I was 12, Bushnell, Illinois. There's yeah. actually they still have a, a hammer factory there that you could hear at all hours of the day. And then I moved to the whopping metropolis of Princeton, Illinois, at, at 7,000 population when I was 12, which was enormous right. for me because there was more than just a couple of groups of friends, you know, at that point too. Yeah. But I mean, it was, it was brick streets and the Jeffersonian grid, and we were actually the county seat. So there was a nice courthouse in the middle of town and uh -huh. every house was built separately and the trees were huge. You couldn't really see the fronts of the houses from the street. It was, it was very... Kind of like what you would see in any sort of 1970s horror film, you know, of the small town Illinois. And right. We have horror film or love story. Let's let's check right. the other. Let's let's give them both options there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't go dark just yet. Don't go. We've got time. We've got time. <laughs> no, but I mean, it was great growing up in a small town. I mean, it really is. Everyone does every know everybody. Yeah. Um, and it was uh, so there was there was a certain intimacy to that. And uh -huh. like, you know, the architecture was great, you know, growing up around all these queen ants, you know, the porches, the basements, the attics, all that stuff. I mean, that definitely forged a lot of why I chose to be an architect later, but it is kind of hard. I was going to say, so as a kid, you were aware of the architecture? You know, yes. I mean, I was thinking about, of course, in lieu of, you know, because I knew I was going to come on this show today. Yeah. I was thinking, one of my first uh, memories of wanting to be an architect, and I didn't even know that it was wanting to be an architect at the time, was we were doing a road trip with my brother and I was in the back seat and I was desperately trying to figure out how to make a mezzanine so I could get away from him in the back seat. Do you understand? <laughs> what I'm and I, in my head, I started to come up with these designs and tried to figure out the spatial environment of the back seat so that I could make an intervention and like get my own space. And can I get up there on that back sill, or can I yeah, push him yeah. into the footwell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that, and also, there's a there's a house in I think it's right on the northern border of Illinois called the House on the Rock, uh -huh. and it is this weird amalgam of Asian Frank Lloyd Wright with combined with an amusement park I mean it is the weirdest thing yeah, right. and they and I went we went and visited it and it had these like sunken conversation pits it was into the rock like there was a one part of it that juts out like 30 or 40 feet into the air away from the rock and then other but so it set up that whole like idea that your house could be subterranean and it could uh -huh. also be like in the air and it was it blew my mind so if if I had looked back and say and that you know also like growing up with Movies like The Spy Who Loved Me and stuff like yep. that. I mean, yep. Come on, when that thing comes out of the water at the end and they get in that escape pod with the shag white carpeting. <laughs> I mean, you know, these these are the things, you know, these are the things that made me want to be an architect or I, I set or the tone. For, set, you know? set the spatial awareness and the, the, that you had, you were seeing something, you know, like a lot of people would go through life and not recognize those things. Right. Um, and yeah. and that's why we have accountants, you know, like, no, yeah. that wasn't a shot at accountants. <laughs> accountants are just the same as everybody else. It was more just, you know, you suddenly had an awareness of it. You're, you're right. Yeah. Visually and emotionally aware of what those spaces could be and do and stuff like that from a young age. I would even say like, I don't know if awareness would be right until I got into architecture school. I got an mm -hmm. awareness there. 
but it intrigued, it grabbed my imagination. Mm -hmm. It compelled me. You know what I mean? It, it pulled on parts of my psyche that felt very powerful and deep and archetypal, you know, Uh in much in the way that you say it would just pass someone else. It would just pass by and they wouldn't even, you know, but not for me, you know, I always think, think that I always think it's fascinating, you know, like you look back at your childhood and you go, so what kind of a child was I? And in my case, I was a brat, but I doubt that. Well, I was like ADHD and, you know, also dyslexic. So I was kind of angry in that, in that sense, because it didn't kind of fit, but then I had all this creative skill and so I could do stuff. So I was, I wasn't bratty, like spoiled. I was bratty like disruptive totally disruptive you know and when did you when did that get channeled for you when did it start going in a positive direction I'm hoping it will (laughs) (laughs) well it already has not as much as my wife's hoping it will well it's that thing you know like I was very aware of space and stuff and I used to make models and things like that my father was an artist yeah like from being a really young kid we always had pens and papers and cardboard and glue and stuff like that and my dad as I say was a fine artist so we were very much around that as an environment and I lived in the country as well not well like it I lived near a small town but lived sort of up in the farmland we weren't on a farm but lived in farmland and it was in New Zealand and in a place called Belmont and we had a creek in our backyard and Sort of that sort of same sort. We had a, a chook farm across the road that, you know, delivered, sold eggs to everybody and stuff like that, you know, so, and horse paddocks and bush and stuff. And so we would build forts and things like most kids. Ah, but, right. but we would also, I would spend lots of time because it's New Zealand, the weather's wet, you know, it's like mm-hmm. I would spend lots of time drawing and model making, model making especially. And what did you make models of? Like houses, obviously, buildings, block, you, you know, things that were like imaginary, you know, houses and things. And and as I got older, like maybe get me to about, must have been around 10, 9 or 10, because I couldn't read. Well, I could, but not very well. My dad got me into Louis L'Amour novels, Western novels. I don't know why, but anyway, they were easy to read. They captured my interest, so I used to build western towns. That was the oh, thing. But I I had a bat that hung from the ceiling in my bedroom that was, you know, something like six foot across that I built. So I'd make things like that. I just right. – we had the resources at home to do it, so I'd do it. Now, I, I, I'm paralleling that with – I was very aware of what shapes and houses and things were – and, right. you know, like I'd build a small town, we'd have a saloon and we'd have a store and we'd have a brothel and we'd have, you know, all the important, all the important things in a bank, you know, that's all you need for a small town and somewhere to tie your horse, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, you... That, this is that thing when you're saying you were inspired by, you know, the house on a rock and these things. And I, I wasn't aware of it being architecture. I was just aware of that we could, that I could do it. You know, that was something right. I could do. Like I, I could put these things together and like you, I'm going, okay, so you you were watching movies like, you know, as you say, The Spy Who Loved Me and things like that. And you're going, 
oh, wow, and I can parallel that journey. I'm going, oh, I remember these things, you know. I remember going to the West Side Story with my mum and being, whilst it was all dance and all the rest, and being absolutely fascinated by all the buildings and then looking at how the movie was set up. You know, like I was trying to analyze, like you in the back seat with the, how do I get a mezzanine in here? Right, right. You should have been more thinking basement because that would have been easier to do. You could have just put your feet on them. (laughs) What movie kind of caught you up the most where you you figure, where you kind of, do you, is there any movie that comes to mind where you were watching it and you just thought, how did they do that? Or what is that space? Or my God, that space is so amazing. Or does any it's interesting you said the spy who loves me because I was thinking when you said it, it really sparked my mind onto James Bond because James Bond always had this fantasiful or these, these incredible space places they went to. And for a kid, you know, you lived in Illinois. I lived in Belmont and, and New Zealand for a kid that lived in a small, you know, somewhat sleepy kind of area where you ran around and, you know, in the in the farmland and, you know, rode horses and things like that. It was like a fantasy. It, it was like it couldn't be real. It, well, that wasn't a location shoot. That must have been something from something else. It was like right. watching the Jetsons, you know. Yes. It, yeah, yeah that, that was probably where I parallel it. I go, oh, yeah, man, I co- can totally relate. And yes. I th- think that movie thing of, watching and and looking at photographs and stuff and maybe using my father's eyes in the sense of he would if I ever asked him about something like a building or you know say say a landscape he would there'd be a house in the landscape or a barn or something like that you know and he would talk to me about how the trees created a lace pattern in the sky and the shadows showed you where the depth in the building was and that how that would change during the day and why he would sketch it in a certain way he'd talk to me about those things so yeah Yeah. different perspectives normal dad son conversation Mm. even close oh there were plenty of the normal ones yeah i'm just saying i wasn't saying there weren't don't do that son (laughs) (laughs) i'm just saying that that's that's such a gift i mean because your dad was a fine artist so you're going to get perspectives like that from him that 99 of people out there won't ever have their parents say oh look at how the the lace tree shows the depth of perception and sketching throughout the day i mean you know because you were artistic that'll shape and mold you for the rest of your life right and and looking into a vista of, you know, like maybe hills that are stacked behind each other and how, especially in New Zealand, when you see that, the light is often quite blue. And he had explained that that was New Zealand light. And you would see these sort of like from deep, deep, almost black navy changing tones as they came forward, you know, over, I don't know how many miles, but maybe it was 50 miles or whatever, you would see these views and how they would shift. And it taught me not to look, it taught me to analyze, I suppose, not to look just at the landscape, but to look into the landscape. Interesting. To, yeah. to see that bit further. And then, yeah, yeah the, then houses and stuff and buildings and what they did in the landscape and how you know people, you got to observe how people shaped the landscape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm, mm. just amazing 
just amazing. But yeah. similar to yours, you you're out there looking well, at all no, this stuff. You mom, didn't necessarily have somebody pushing you down it. Yeah, tell me, yeah, your mom. I I didn't. I didn't. My mom was a, a clinical psychologist, uh -huh. and my dad was a lawyer. He passed when I was young, but you know, my mom. I mean, she's like Mensa smart and all this other stuff, but she's not creative. So. But definitely exposed, very theatrical. So it would take us to plays and take us to, you know, whatever. So I was always, and I knew I always needed to do something creative. Like, uh -huh. I don't think there was even one moment when I slightly entertained, like becoming a doctor or a lawyer or anything else. I, I knew it would have to be in the creative world. So. Right. Yeah. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. So then, so then this kid that was in Illinois mm -hmm. and then tell me what happened next. <laughs> Well, this kid in Illinois, of course, wanted to be a movie star. I mean, how trite, right? So somebody uh, has to be one. Someone does. Why mm -hmm. not me? Mm -hmm. No, I, I did. I mean, I had some success in Illinois in high school. It was like state champion verse reading and some other things. And then I went. I spent a summer at Williamstown Theater Festival in Massachusetts. Oh. And wow, what a coming of age summer that was for me between my junior and senior year. And I came back to high school after that was just bizarre. I mean. And then so immediately after graduating, packed my bags, drove out to L.A., you know, got an agent, lived in Los Angeles for a year before I went to UCLA. I, for a moment, I thought I may not go to college at all, you know, and my mom, God bless her, was like, no, you're going no, go to go to school. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, no, I don't think I am because, you know, it's just a waste of my time, you know. Yes. And she said, I think that you'll want to get that stamp on your forehead so that you don't have to try to explain to people why you didn't need one at the end of the day. And I was probably vain enough and afraid enough to go. Okay. So I went to UCLA and I got in their theater department and I was there for a few years and it was great. I love theater. I love acting. I think it's all wonderful. I got my SAG card. I was on TV a couple of times. It's great, but you know, there were other things that I could do. And that particular life was really arduous in ways that, you know, the other arts maybe can, are not, you know, so I pursued architecture and said, I'm so grateful, so grateful that I did. Yeah. <laughs> now my drawings can take the heat and it's not my, it's, it's not, not my, you physically critical level. I mean, still it hurts. Like, you know, if you do something and the client's not like, Oh, that's amazing. If they're like, mm, you know, that's kind of slightly disappointing. It still stings, but it, it, there's a, there's a level of, but separation. you can fix it. Oh, you can totally you can fix, fix it. it. You can't make yourself taller or shorter. Or... Right. And also acting was so improvised, 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 it was all improv. It was, it was, all like it was... improvisational. Was, I think yeah, you really... can't, you can't totally plan it. You've got to be on no, when it's right. on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whereas architecture, I could go into the closet, and work on it for however long uh -huh. before I wanted to show you anything at all. Uh -huh. Right. And that was actually, I think I'm well more suited to that. And then, you know, I'm actually, I have some math inclinations and all that. So architecture is much more suited. Yeah. Me. Wow. That's a, it's so interesting. I think, you know, like that, that parallel, if you say, for instance, you're on a TV show and the TV show is a, a say about architecture or it's about design and, you know, somebody puts you deliberately on the spot to you know, think reality TV puts you on the spot as to, so how will you solve this problem? Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, like in the moment, there's probably ways of solving the problem that I've found in my years with, you know, design of all kinds, it's actually the, the research or the deeper understanding that is what solves the problem correctly. It's about getting the right questions not just the one that's off the cuff 
not just um, the flash pan. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And I, I, I remember doing a. I was, I was given an opportunity to try out for a reality TV show on design in Australia, and I'm there, and they. There's, you know, I don't know, 100 people in the room, you know what auditions are like. And then right. they get it down to however many, and then they're down to however many, and then they're down to, you know, like six of you or something. And they had these this architect and a builder and some other producers and stuff around. And they're saying, so what would you do with this? And you've got to have, have an instant answer. And you, what would you do with this? You've got to have an instant answer. And it's easy to have an instant answer because you could say, I don't know, that could be the answer, but that isn't the one they're looking for. And then, you know, they're they're seeing what you will do when you're under pressure. And that's the acting thing of you like. So in that situation, you would do this because of this, because you feel that's where it's going. It's not necessarily you being perfectly upfront with it. It's you trying to find the right answer. So you... And when, like when you're a kid, you're trying to find the right answer. So you're in less trouble, you know, like, <laughs> what do I leave well, I mean, out or what do I, I mean, add? Yeah. It's also really strange too. Cause I don't know what your experience is like, but sometimes my, I always have that first idea that I'm in love with. Right. Mm-hmm. And then during the process, while I'm working on a project, a lot of the times that first idea that I was in love with kind of falls apart. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there's a weird magical moment. And sometimes it can be talking in the office or, and I don't know why, but oftentimes it comes with, and this is why studio, I guess, was a big, you know, big deal in school was that when you're explaining your design to somebody else, or at least when I do, and I'm ver- visualizing or verbalizing articulating it. Yeah. Articulating it, who knows where the sparks are going to come from? I mean, that's mm-hmm. the weirdest thing is that, you know, it's, it's, you know, th- these great ideas come out of nowhere and, and they have nothing to do oftentimes with that first initial idea that I was in love with in the very, very, very beginning, you know? So yeah, it, architecture lends itself to that sort of discovery, that sort of, you know, magic, you know, whereas, you know, performance, especially if it's live, yeah. you know, not, you know, and also in reality TV, I mean, come on, Adrian, they're, they're looking for people That's... to be obnoxious as much as they are for yeah. them to be good at what they do, you know? I mean, so yeah yeah no doubt no doubt they want they want a span of you know different and in, in reality tv of different personalities they right. need enough tension enough drama. excitement enough drama because that makes a tv show it does yeah. and it does. that doesn't necessarily make a great client experience i really like what you were saying there about you know the 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 fact that you get this magic idea you get this idea that you go oh wow and you can see this idea playing out. And then as you as the the discovery of a project goes on, especially in renovations, I think. Oh, and, and, and new builds as well, but in renovations this happens a lot. The the discovery of the limitations of what the building may allow or how it how it's already held together, you know, may or may not allow you to keep moving in that direction. And then you kind of get to roadblocks. And then there's all of a sudden another spark of magic that carries you to another point. And it could be within days or it could be within months. And, you know, I don't even almost want to say it out loud because not all of them are this way. But, you know, like when Steven Spielberg was making Jaws uh-huh. and they, they couldn't get the shark to work, you know. And I don't know this story. 
Oh, you haven't. Well, so people say to this day, I think even Stephen does too, that 80 to 90% of the reason why that film is so scary is because you don't really ever see the shark because they couldn't get it to work. Right. Right. (laughs) So it was all in your mind. Right. They psychologically. So, so similarly speaking, and I I don't want to say this out loud because honestly speaking, it doesn't happen every time, but the things that chafe on a project uh-huh. can be the things that in that end up being the diamonds right i mean yep. not always yep. not always you know but there are times when and and oftentimes to go back to what we were saying earlier too that is exactly why that first flash in the pan idea doesn't fit you know uh-huh. because there there are some things that come out of that juxtaposition that strife that chafing that speak specifically just to that particular project and that client in that moment with that budget or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. All the constraints that, that in the first moment you don't necessarily are, well, you can't always be, especially in a renovation, aware of all the constraints. And then those constraints show themselves along the way. And as they show themselves along the way, you know, it's very easy to end up in a process where you just keep modifying, modifying, modifying. And I always love it when we, I think this is being rigorous in design, is when we just take a fresh sheet of paper hmm. and go, hmm, okay, we know all the constraints now. We're, we're very aware. And everything that we were welded to, let's hmm. now let's now throw it out. And let's just... Yeah. Tr- Draw like we've just arrived again, and where's our magic? Well, I'm impressed with you, Adrian, because it takes it takes a lot to be able to do that, right? It takes a lot to be able to let go if you've been trying to make shove the round peg into the or square peg into the round hole. Hammer it, asking, not shove. Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> hammer. It will fit. It will, it will fit. fit. It just needs me to hit it harder. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's great. I mean, if you if you can, if you can actually get to the place where you can absolutely let go entirely. But yeah. again, that just goes back to that first point, like, you know, on the design show, they want you to have that idea. And no, to be honest, some people are very wickedly talented. Mm-hmm. And their first ideas sometimes are brilliant. I yeah. mean, they're absolutely brilliant. But oftentimes in the real world, like with real clients that really want it to be about them, you know, yes. maybe and less about the artiste kind of yeah. thing. You know, it really does come from getting to that place where you've got the blank piece of paper and you're willing to just throw everything out and just go, okay, let's see it fresh. You know, I I think there's a there's a lot of clearing in doing that. And, and, you know, go back to the thing that you, you know, I put it in your intro, your architecture, your your niche in architecture is to tell your client's story. Um, And so. There are certainly, you know, architects and designers out there that tell their story. And then there's architects and designers who tell their client's story. And in telling their client's story, they're looking for all the nuances and the personality that a client has. And then the emotions that that person carries. And then how does the architecture respond? First of all, how does the, the environment respond, the land and the the position and all the rest how does that respond to what the structure's got to be whether it's new build or currently built you know and it's a remodel or renovation and additions and stuff there's that and then there is that next step which is now that we know what the regulations and the environment is asking us for what is the client asking us for without them even knowing they're asking for it 
I know. Oftentimes it's hidden gems that they didn't even know they were carrying around, you know, and that's our job. I mean, our job is to, to peer into that and to pry it open and kind of dig it out. You know, a lot of times clients will show me a Pinterest picture and they'll, oh, I love this, but they don't know. They don't know why. Right. But you and I do, because we've spent decades like analyzing what it is what is it the light is it the space is it the materiality is it the kind of the texture of the you know the surface what is it the spatial sequencing you know we can tell because it's our trade you know and but they can't they can't no they they, it just feels right for them so i look at that and i go first of all you say you love it what emotions it bringing up for you you know is it would you love it in the morning? Would you love it in the afternoon? Would you love it in the evening? Would you love it on Saturday or would you love it on Tuesday? When what? When would you love it? And they might say all the time and you go, okay, so if you were using this space, you know, how would you be using it? What would your family be doing? What would be happening? And what would what would those emotions feel like? And it is, it's all these different things. And then I love to go, so do you like that chair? in the picture you know and they'll go oh no no I don't like the chair and you'll find out that they they love you know like the I don't know the height of the window or the, the, cat, in the, the cat in the <laughs> corner it's that's the, that is actually the magic piece in the picture that made them feel really good right well the other thing too I mean you know I mean so not only do when you ask your clients to give you I mean we ask them to like you know label each like uh, picture they give us with what they like or what they hate about uh-huh. it too but oftentimes too they'll like something that is unfortunately very inappropriate for their situation you know what I mean and and then you know it's our it's our job then too to kind of walk them through that you know and Oh, or, you know, there's the age old thing. I mean, as long as we're on the Pinterest, you know, <laughs> of, of them like going, well, I don't really need it designed. Here it is. Like, I just need you to do this. Right. And it, it's our job to go, well, that's a great start. That is fabulous. Cause it is, I, I you know, it's very mm-hmm. difficult to design for a client that doesn't, I can't recognize what they like or don't like. I mean, that's a hard task, but then it's our job to just go, okay, well, you know, we're going to have to reorient everything so that this is there and that is over there. And is that really what you were thinking? And then, you know, so sometimes, you know, it's a little. Such a a journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And keeping their, you know, the more you discover them and their personalities and their quirkiness, their, you know, each human's so different, yet we're all so, so similar, but we're so different in our little quirkiness and the way we want to behave and so often with I think with architecture people project themselves into a space that doesn't yet exist and so they they are imagining themselves in something that they've imagined it doesn't yet exist they haven't ever experienced it before you know they may have gone to their friend's place and gone I really love this about my friend's place but more often they've seen a picture and they're imagining themselves in that picture somehow. Mm-hmm. And they haven't ever really experienced it. Right, right. But so, you know, I have to say that even if they haven't, even if they haven't, this goes back to our talk about film, right? Yeah. Even yeah. if you haven't experienced it, it's if it calls to you, it calls to you still, right? So I, I mean, it's, it, you know, I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, it's two-dimensional. I get it. One of, one of the greatest things I loved about Victorian, and yes, I do like Victorian architecture. Uh-huh. I'm going on 
I'm going on audible record as saying that I like the architecture. But one of the things that I love about it is just the fact that there's foreshadowing. There's like when you look up and you see the turret or you see uh -huh. the windows, you know, at the top of the house. And I, I think to myself, how do you, how do you get up there? Like yeah. I've not been up there. I mean, I'm sure that the weird thing about that is that I don't even know the experience of being up there is cool, but being on the ground and imagining myself getting up there or imagining myself being up there sometimes that is a very tangible part of architecture like the imagine the imagination of the route before yeah. you even get there you yeah. know if you give that to your client you are you know which is why okay if we're going to talk about the farnsworth house which we may or may not we will we will because it's rooted in victorian <laughs> architecture right it's, it's a natural uh, cousin so like the, the point of that is that sometimes the minimalist architecture, let's say the Barcelona pavilion, and I know uh -huh. I'm street cred all over the place right now, yeah. but you know, it's where it's so easily to understandable, understandable, there aren't layers, there isn't a narrative, there isn't any discovery necessarily. I mean, it's a beautiful composition of materials and light. Don't get me wrong. Don't get yeah. me wrong. No, no, I'm with you. But, but to go back to your comment about, yes, you're right. Most clients are just looking at a picture and they're thinking about what they think they might be like if they were in the space and they haven't even been it's like a travel brochure yeah you know they see this amazing yeah. beach in thailand uh, <laughs> and a travel brochure and they dig deep into their pockets and you know jet the whole family there and yes. and then they've got this preconceived experience of what it's like the only good thing about the beach in thailand other than the experience of being there and doing all the things you might do is that you can leave it. You don't have to live in it for the next, you know, 10 or 20 years. And right. so this is that responsibility of rigor and architecture and understanding, I think the client and also the site so much, the site understanding both those things so that you can get the best out of it. it it's part of the joy. It's well, it's a big part of the joy, you know, how do people live in those environments? So tell me about, you were talking to me earlier about the poetics of space yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> well, how it influenced you so much in your journey. I got to step back a tiny little bit because, you know, I come from Illinois, right? And I'm surrounded by all these Queen Anne Victorians, you know, uh, yep. oh, my, my friends in California that grew up in subdivisions. They're like, well, what do you mean every house was different? You mean a different developer did every house? <laughs> What was going on with that? I know. <laughs> no, they were built one at a time, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We didn't just, we didn't put a gate on the front and go, okay, the color palette is X, the roof shapes are X. And right. yep. And there's 20, oh no, eight different facades. Um, right. I mean, yeah. honestly, that wasn't even a thing until what, after Levittown or post-World War II, you know what I mean? Housing wasn't really... I mean, maybe it was in certain areas, but, you know, on the whole, it wasn't constructed that way. Houses were one at a time, mostly. Yeah. You know. I've got but a question. I want to interrupt you with this and we, well, yeah. we'll come back to where you are. But I've got this question that, so take what we just said then about, um, you know, these, the, these kids, same age, growing up in, say, California, where they grew up in subdivisions and this this urban sprawl of subdivisions. Right. And, like, yeah. Uh, and and it created communities of a of, of another kind. And then take it like we how you grew up and how I grew up, 
where we lived, I didn't grow up with any architectural merit around me. You know, the chook sheds across the road, maybe not so much. And the houses were sort of just very regular houses. However, different shaped roofs. Some were Mm -hmm. two-story, some were single-story, you know, these things. There wasn't like any period architecture like you're talking about with Queen Anne and and Victorian and, you know, those kinds of things. So we didn't have any of that around us immediately where we lived. You just Um, had a dad talking about the lace pattern from the tree. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was, I was, I was lucky. On the barn and yeah. Yeah, the and new ca- quality of the New Zealand lights. <laughs> yeah, and the 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 bird song and the yes. you know the the sounds of the trees and stuff like that. Yeah, yes. my mother was a speech and drama teacher, so I did oh, have a fair wow. a fair bit from her as well. We when we look at those things and we look at like a subdivision, and today you see, you know, we call them project homes in Australia. These are homes that are you know developer built and. De- they're just laid out mm-hmm, through mm-hmm. these, you know, th- through these subdivisions. Mm-hmm. None of them, and this is when people say to me, you know, why do we need a designer or why does somebody need a designer? Just the builder can do it all. We'll just buy this project home. None of those homes are designed for the orientation of that site. Mm-hmm. None of them. They're all designed for the facade to the street. Yep. So when we go back, and this is my question, when we go backwards into those Victorians mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and those Queen Anne homes, were any of them designed for the orientation? You know, it's a good question. And it's hard to say because one of some of the best memories I have of those homes mm-hmm. are of spaces that, well, I mean, certainly the porches were, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, but a lot of them were also meant to address the street. There was there was an old culture there about hanging out on your porch mm-hmm. and watching your neighbors go by. It doesn't exist anymore, and I understand why. It, but it, it does in Austin, Texas. But yeah, keep oh, going. Okay, all right, yeah. all right. So anyway, that those spaces most likely probably the one thing that gets a little blurry is that the trees. Uh, my favorite memories are of some of those second, third story balconies that uh-huh. when you got out on onto them, you're in the treetops, uh-huh. and the trees were huge, and yeah. it kind. of felt like another world like like you were in a tree house at that point and it it was like nothing like being like you and, and so was the house designed for the tree or did the tree grow up around the house or mm. it, you know I mean it's 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 one of those ones where I think I might be lending the architect too much um credit to say that they designed the house around that tree at that time or that just that over the last hundred years the tree has grown to that has grown to that size yeah, I, I, in town, in town though, I mean the setbacks of the houses from the street. There were no fences. There's no gates or anything like that on the streets I grew up in. There didn't mm-hmm. really need to be because there was privacy from the street. Oftentimes, a house would be two or three feet above the sidewalk and back thirty or forty feet, and mature, mature trees. You didn't see the fronts of the houses at all when you look down the street it was just like a tree-lined street right you just saw it when you look left or right right and and then not oftentimes not until you actually pull up to the house and then you know you so there was a lot of layers of hiddenness and weirdness that came with the site which you know but i think probably weren't endemic to the site mm-hmm. maybe were created with you know each house as it was coming along but by the time i got to it it was everything was very 
I mean, my my husband grew up in Southern California and he just couldn't believe that there weren't fences in between the backyards. Like everybody's yeah. backyard just kind of melded into each other. And, yeah. you know, he grew up in a place where your parcel of land was very identified, you know, but there wasn't anything to, there wasn't anything but that six foot code required fence. Yeah. You know, you know there were. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's something that fascinates me. And and part of talking to so many different architects and stuff, it's not a question I ask often enough, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, at what point did, I I think the general public, and that sounds like I'm saying they're not, you know, that there's better and worse, but people, when they're not aware, they just take what they get and then, architecture has responded to its site over the years for for many many years like yet so often residential homes have been built with a facade to the street you know they're addressing a street not necessarily the environment as much um and I'm going at what point does that shift? So we're talking Queen Anne, Victoria, and then you talk about Farnsworth House and you go, oh, okay. So at what point did each of these things, you know, earlier before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's work and you, I'm sure you've been to Falling Water. Have you? I haven't. Oh. I haven't. Okay, we, we'll have to go together. Um yeah. With falling water, it is built only to respond. Well, not only to respond. It's built totally to respond to the site. And right. then, well, but also with his precepts too. hundred like percent. The ones that you were talking about as well. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the, a love of materials and light and mm. height and all that stuff. But yeah, the, the actual, you know, creek or river or whatever it is in the site, you know, yeah. of course. So, you know. so where does, where does the, you know, in, in the scheme of architecture and design, where does the general public, as I said before, where is it that they actually get to experience that difference? And so they, well, you know, employ somebody like you and you take maybe something that maybe it's a, a renovation that existed in one way and then make it re-engage in a whole new way. I mean, it's, well, it's a question of, I thought you were going to go down the road of, when do you think it changed? And, and, and mm, I was, yeah. Where did it right, change? Well, or has it changed? Let's go there. Well, I, I, I hate having to tell you this, but I think it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's an economical one. I, it's, mm-hmm. you know, there, it's, it's kind of like saying, oh, please, I know this is reductive. I know this is reductive. So just hang with me for a second here, but <laughs> I don't we'll work mind, through it. <laughs> right. I don't mind shopping for my clothes at chain stores. Okay. Uh-huh. I really don't. And is my body hard to fit? Yeah. Would I, would I look better if I were something tailored and could, no question, zero question, you Uh know, is do my predilections lie in that area? Well, as a designer, they kind of do, but not enough. Right. So for some people getting a bespoke, you know, suit is it's the world and, and does it fit and, and live with them in, in for, you know, is it an investment? Of course it is. Right. But lots of people are fine with going to the mall, you know, mm-hmm. and unfor- you know, fortunately or fortunately or whatever, there's just a ton of people that their homes are really just the backdrops to their lives. They need to be comfortable. They need to be able to get to work on time, you know, maybe not too far away. The schools are important, yada, yada, yada. 
you know, for you and me, it's all about our imagination. And well, I would say with everybody, and one of the first questions we asked, right, is what is your favorite childhood memory in your home, right? And oftentimes I find they're in window box seats or in alcoves or in attics or in basements or hidden areas or the houses that I grew up would have like a staff stair that would go down into the kitchen that was behind a hidden door or something like that. Spaces like that, you know, where where memories are housed and created. And and to answer your question about Gaston Bachelard, it's all about this, right? right. That, that the house is, you know, the basement is talks about our, you know, the cellars and our mysteries and our earthenness and that, you know, the alcoves is where we house our memories. And that when you have those alcoves to go back to, it reverberates your imagination and creates a whole other life for you and that if there are addicts that that's your aspirations and you know so the poetics of space and stuff like that appeal to me obviously and I am willing to pay for them like a bespoke suit you know much more so than you know I would for a tract house when we were were first buying a a home my husband and I used to say that tract houses were Satan's candy you know because you walk (laughs) in and it's dialed out and it looks good and you can afford it (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, yum, 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 yum. I mean, okay, it was bad, and it tastes bad, like burritos, like five minutes later, right? Yeah. But um, when you first walk in, because everything else, especially here in California, that we were looking at when we were trying to buy a house, was just insanely Mm. expensive and not very. Ugh, it was awful, and all of it was built after 1960s. Here, it just you know, coming from the Queen Anne Victorians that I came from, it just was desolate. And then you'd walk into a tract house and go. Ah, you know, but you knew it had a veneer. Yes. Of yes. Well, I think this is the this is the thing, and there is the there's the ability to uh, mass produce them more inexpensively. You know, often I, I I would talk to people, and they I'd say to them with a project house, uh, the difference between if they employ me to do something and if they uh, use the project house and if their budgets this x amount of dollars just the fees from us and the engineer and all these other things that they're going to experience is which room don't you want correct and we are all about showing them that if you can let go of that room you'll have a house that's a thousand times better there's the key this that's the answer is like this house will live with you and you will live with it and it will live with its environment and we don't need the room we don't need that one room we right. can do it without it, you yeah. know, and and what we can do without it is create these, you said it before, you know, alcoves house our memories. We can create these magic moments within the structure that mm-hmm. create tradition, create memories and, and I want to say emotional holds. And like you said, I love that. Yeah, yeah, I love the... You said, you know, we ask our clients, what's your favorite space as a child? What's your favorite childhood memory of a mm. space in your house? You know, right. I remember going through a stage where we used to, we lived in a low set house with a flat ceiling and it had a roof space that you could go through a manhole, obviously, like most homes, but the space up there, you couldn't stand up in. And right. but we used to get up in that space all the time. And and hang out up there, you know. We awesome, shoved, right? yeah, we shoved boards up in there, and luckily we had no idea about how much weight we were adding. And 
but we would create those kind of spaces, you know, within the house. And my parents would be like, get out of the ceiling. I mean, that's the thing is that I was thinking about that before today too, because, you know, there's that Heatherwick project in South Africa, the, the, the grain silo. Yeah. The grain silos. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. And how incredible there is something so sublime and awesome about taking a space that is not meant for something and Uh rehabbing it and inhabiting it in a way that it is now being used for something else and it's that that dichotomy that you know juxtaposition that is gobsmacking and like you being in the ceiling i mean you you can't you couldn't even stand up it's not like functional couldn't even see out needed a torch but it calls to you right it's there is something archetypal about it there's 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 just something about like and there was an abutment in a bridge abutment in San Francisco, right down on the Embarcadero. And it was where the Bay Bridge landed. And it's this huge, like concrete thing. And it's not even a space. It's just an object. And but standing next to it, you know, I can't believe we built it. I can't believe human beings yeah. built stuff like that. I mean, I've been to the Hoover Dam. Same yeah, thing, sure. Right? Yeah. I could yeah. actually stand right next to this thing. But of course, my imagination goes to what if I could like burrow into that and create like a little thing in there like you know i'm that's a little spot i could get into and be be contained yeah from the thing like this is you know these are those spaces that like whilst maybe they're not functional i mean you certainly weren't holding parties or taking a bath or cooking Uh anything feeling but yeah that's that's the magic that is it that is it for sure i think i think this is such a fascinating part of the conversation of you know how how you can make design respond to humans and take them on that same journey that when they pull a picture up out of Pinterest or Instagram or something, take them on that same journey and discover that and take them through this. It's a, it's a gift to be able to do it and it's a, a gift for the client to be able to go down the, the journey of it. I I've got a couple of questions. I've got I've got say three that I want to ask you before we wrap up. One is, what would you tell your younger self today to do differently, or the key thing to your journey? What would you What would you tell your younger self? Well, it's interesting because what comes to my mind is something that I did actually have to come to towards mm-hmm. the end of my schedule, which is just stick. Okay. All right. I'm going to quote Babe to you right now. And yes, <laughs> I'm talking about the pig movie. The pig um, movie. Yes, I am. So there's a line in that that says, I'm going to butcher this, but it said something like, Farmer Hoggett realized that the thoughts that niggled and wiggled and refused to go away should not be ignored, for in them lie the seeds of destiny or something like that. Oh, right. right. Yeah, right. I think the guy that wrote that wrote Mad Max. Oh, right. Really? I mean, how does the guy who writes The Road Warrior write Babe? But anyway, anyway, so. A great writer. The same could be said of a great architect. Yeah. How did they they do that bus shelter and that? Yeah. No, but I mean, so I was really struggling in architecture school. I was a straight neurotic straight A student. I know you find that very hard to believe. Um, Just sounds so out of character. I know, right? So, and very worried about that all the time in a very kind of useless sort of way. So by the time I got to architecture school, it was really weird for me to get B's in studio. And there were, there were, I was, you know, I had students in my classes that had experience in architecture and were drawing better than me. And 
knew about Marxism and architecture and all this stuff. And all I knew was that I like Victorian houses. So I was well behind the curve. You know what I'm saying? Well, well, well behind the curve. <laughs> and also they, they said, oh, the Farnsworth house is the best house ever. In, and I in the world, yeah. In the world. And I couldn't relate to that coming from my queen. Own. So what happened with the Farmer Hoggett thing is that I would say to my younger self, and I did have to pull this out at the very end in order to just keep my head above water. And then I ended up succeeding very well. And at the end, they gave me awards and I was in the top two. And like, I mean, like it was like the typical, you know, kind of here, yeah. you know, tragedy, because I certainly didn't really want the path that led to that. But to to take whatever it is that you are passionate about and to look deeply, look deeply into what it is that motivates you, what keeps you up at night, what what makes you tick? You know, don't let go. You might have to have a critical eye about it. You might have to pull it apart. You might have to question yourself around it. But don't don't let that go because that's it. That's all you got. And it may not be everybody's cup of tea and and it may not play and it may not be popular, but that's your integrity. And you can't that you need to drill down and you need to go hard on that. I like that. I like yeah. that. And once you do, you can start asking people to help you go hard on it. You can look for other people who have gone hard on it. And then you have community. Yeah. And people will bend over backwards to help you because they can smell the truth in your quest, you know? So, and it's hard because if you're hearing that, it's probably because you're not doing something. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah all the time and everyone's patting you on the back you probably don't even have to think about that you know what I mean so well maybe you're already there or maybe you're already there maybe you've already found that maybe, maybe you just broke the wave on the way in you yeah know? yeah yeah it's I think it's a really I love the answer I think you know look deeply into your passion and don't let go and and be you know yeah smell the quest in your truth is, is just so like it's so true of it gives you the ability to be rigorous and to be determined and to not give up and to so that back then forms who you are now and how hard you want to work at what you do now to do to to create for your clients to you know, give the gift away that you have to been given and then developed. I think that's right. really I mean, then you can skin your knees and it's okay. Mm. Mm. Even in your knees and it's okay because it there's a there's a place for it you yeah know? because it's not it's not about succeeding all the time necessarily it's about chasing after yeah. something yeah. yeah yeah it's about seeing the vision and keeping moving forward okay another question which one am I gonna do first <laughs> I'm gonna do first I'm gonna do anticipation in your home now what is your absolute favorite space? Oh. Well, I guess I'm going to have to say the kitchen booth. The kitchen booth? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, yeah, it's hard because of course I've designed my house. So there's a, there's a few different spaces toggling around in my head, but the kitchen booth is where we hang out, right? It's, it's, it's nestled. It's, I've got some paneling around it. I love Charles Renee McIntosh. And I've basically ripped off a lot of his details from the Hill House where he puts <laughs> glass in the paneling in the walls, you know? Yeah. So we have this 
this nice little area right off our kitchen or kind of it's part of our kitchen that is a booth. It's a horseshoe shaped thing. It's so super comfortable. It fits four. There's four of us. Sometimes it fits five. And it's where a lot of life happens. And it happens in a very warm kind of nested, comfortable, but also kind of bits of beauty are in there too, you know, uh -huh. and the shape of the ceiling are all vaulted and stuff like that. And it's kind of like, you can see that it was kind of shoved into an area where it's just, I would have to say it's an alcove. It's an alcove. Okay. And what emotion does it give you? Well, oddly, you know, the first one that comes to my mind is warm stability. Okay. That's yeah. not sexy. How come I didn't think of something else? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe if your emotion is warm stability. Yeah, it's it, it, it makes you sexy. It well, yeah. Let's say that. Um, let's just say that. Well, maybe what it does is it actually just gives you a sense of place and purpose and home and yeah, safety. Definitely. And, and safe. that's it's 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 safe. It's warm. It's nestled. It's it's grounded. Yeah. It's 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 I'm very kind of my energy my energy is very kind of all over the place and up high and out right so then the thing that would be the thing that would be good for me and my husband's completely the opposite way right so then good for me is something that is very grounding and very calm and very purposeful but also beautiful but warm so I yeah that's how I feel it, also with it having like it being an alcove it, it has protection around you. All, all, all sides are protect. Well, not all, but with a window you know. that also with yeah. a window that also looks out too. So yeah, it's nice. yeah. There's something really special about that, and these are the moments that you create in architecture for others, but also for yourself. I think it's really lovely. That's a, a great answer, by the way. Great answer. Really, really like that, and I can imagine, you know, that piece of community and family and stuff sitting around in there. And... I mean, you can imagine all the the memories, right? Oh, yeah. All the photos yeah. the, when the kids grow up in the booth, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, all these, my youngest son, Sam, went through a Godzilla phase and he would <laughs> have these, like, you know, Godzilla toys and he would get like the tiny little cars and make the, like the, the village and have the guy. And yeah. so I'd pick that on the kitchen table with him in the booth, like, you know, that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's very intimate, like it's really intimate space to be in. I love it, love it. Okay, last question. Last one. This is it. This is the big one. You've got one project left. <laughs> what would it be? This is it. You can never talk about it, do anything else. You can't do another project. You can't advise on another project. You are done. This is it. Done. What do you choose? All right. Well, I'm going to say the first thing that came to my mind because it's the first, you know, it was my mind went there. It first. must be true. <laughs> it must be true. It can't just be that I had a brain vision, right? Okay. So I would have to say that I would love to do a house that is partially submerged, but very kind of glassy and modern, but also sunken into the earth. So like think Tony Stark, but also Emilia and Emilio Ambaz, if you know who that is, or, you yeah. know, I mean, like these, these kind of, that have a subterranean part of the house that's back into the, and of, of course, all very John Lautner, all very John Lautner. If, if someone right. would just let me do that. You'd stop. I, if, I, <laughs> if that I'd would be it, you'd be finished. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. 
I mean, Lautner's one of my absolute favorites, you know what I mean? But it would have to have like a part of the house would have to be like, like I said, sunken and submerged, but the rest of it is very John Lautner and very kind of, you know, where the boulder kind of comes through the window Uh and all that. And yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's very connected to nature. Yes. um... But also very buried and very, I mean, it reminds me of the kitchen booth, I guess, in some ways, like it's, it's very nestled and very like grounded, right? Yeah. very aspirational and very glossy you know so if there's uh somebody listening to this podcast that relates to this yes dulcie needs your you need to call dulcie and just flesh this out with her because she will stop when you let her do it (laughs) no it's it's something that i i think that this is the most amazing thing is often you know we do what we do and if you if you lined it up and you said, well, if I only had one more chance to do one more thing, what would it be? And because it's so exciting doing what we do, drawing, you know, homes and creating these spaces for people that you can't often ever imagine stopping. It's like it's ingrained in what you do. It's just like, how can you like four or five things more you want to do i mean it's hard yeah exactly one thing is like what would yours be i think and i've given this question to a lot of people over the years and i'm really 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 torn because the best answer i think that i've ever had was tom kundig who said i'd start something that i couldn't finish in my lifetime Oh, I thought, go you, Tom. That's that's yeah. why you're Tom. Yeah, that's why you're Tom yeah. Conduct. Because he said, I don't want to stop. I okay. think, I think that my my ultimate would be a boutique hotel with maybe you know no more than thirty rooms, something like that. There'd be there, I don't know the metrics on hotels as to where the money shots are so there's certain numbers of rooms that make them work really well and there'll be rooms when they don't you know you'll be overstaffed for what your thing is or whatever so given I learned that metric it would be to create a boutique hotel that had probably a lot of mid-century overtones but very connected to the land that it's in to, to its landscape and would it be isolated or would it be in a more urban I think it would be semi it would be on the fringe of urban and it would be but it would be close to wilderness it would be like back out the back would be wilderness but out the front could be community more community and it certainly it would be on a hill I know that it wouldn't be on the flat I know it would be on a hill and it would be you know, almost in that pavilionized type style rather than one big building. It wouldn't be a single building. It would it would be a spread of, of space. So again, that it creates separation, but also community. And the community is attached with the nature that's in it, around it and stuff like that. And it has to have, you know, the right size trees and the right size boulders and the right size pieces of nature so that birds would come in and, you know, if it's in the US, squirrels would come in. So these other things would engage in the space because. Then you would quit too? Oh, hell yeah. 
<laughs> Part of my fee would be a room. Yeah. <laughs> well, the funny yeah, they, thing is they'd say they, they need 31 at uh, 30, and I'd say, cool, we'll do 31. <laughs> and I'm doing it for free, but I'm that's my room. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. If I'm uh, not in it, we can rent it out, but otherwise I'm in it. Yeah. 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 Uh, to me that, yeah, to me that kind of space would be um fabulous because you'd have your own space, but you'd have lots of people coming and going, and everybody that comes and goes would get to enjoy that space as well. And you know, you'd be this crusty old bastard that kind of <laughs> wandered around and man, what what's that make you feel? You know, I don't know what you do. So. <laughs> so easy rocking that that's for sure yeah I I I think it would be an amazing thing and the other thing that I would love to do with a space like that and you said before you know nowadays everybody has fences and stuff like this and I said oh not in Austin Texas I was I was doing a series for the AIA Austin for their homes tour and we're talking about one particular home and the guy was from California and he's moved to Austin and he has a, a semi mid-century style home, but he has a front porch to engage the street and it's deliberately built so that he can sit there and talk to the passers-by and all the rest. Now the street that he's in, this is how that street is. Okay. It's a community it's street. Everybody creating- already does it. He's not creating it's it individually. Hard. Yeah. He chose the street based mm-hmm. on the way the community operates in that street. And oh, so this is a really important and I know of several places like this in Austin and there are probably plenty of others around the world and you know um where they might have side fences but they don't have front fences. Right. They right. they that the homes are made to have community where you walk past where you do things and you people come pass with a glass of wine or a cup of coffee or whatever. They talk over their fence. They mm. they do all this. And I think that in master planning, uh, certainly like when I'm saying like this, you know, boutique hotel, I would have a front porch on every room so that people can actually, you know, walk past somebody else and say hi. They know they're in community, but they don't have to engage either that they right. can, but their journey takes them through. Yeah. Right. For that reason, because I think there's so much joy in seeing other people, but not necessarily having to engage with them. Right. Mm. Get the and all those things you said before about, you know, places being earthed and that you were high and out with your energy and how that booth makes you feel because it grounds you. I'm the same high and out with my energy. So I'm always looking for grounding. I'm always on a hill. I'm always around rock. You know, I seek these spaces out because otherwise, you know, I might just disappear off into the clouds. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fascinating. I get to, from doing this, from doing the podcast, I get to talk to people like you and find those pieces of my own journey and what matters to me from the conversations other people bring. Yeah, hundred percent. Yep, mm, it's a joy. I that was fantastic. I think you know we covered a lot of things there. Well, and, we could talk for hours, you know. 
We can. We'll do it again without a doubt. <laughs> I really enjoyed those pieces around, you know, that what you were saying about the alcove and then where that comes from in that poetics of space and right. that I mean, how these that houses. Was, yeah. The book was controversial when I was not controversial, but I would say that I think there was another book at the time called Pattern Living or I can't remember the name of it, but it was also. Anything that that was aired on the sides of emotions or sentiment when I was in school was, you know, very hold your nose. You know, it was it was second rate, second class, you know, that kind of thing. So but when I read it, I I just, you know, caught my hair on fire. You know, it is is all those things. And it's definitely what makes a house a home. You know, Uh, I I totally agree. I'm I'm 100 percent there. There's actually I just listened to the other day a wonderful interview with somebody else that you mentioned, which was Hethwick, so Thomas Hethwick Studio. But Thomas talking on a BBC radio interview about the emotions of creating space and how well, this... in his work. Good Lord, that yeah. guy. So talented. Mm. Yeah. I mean, phenomenal. Phenomenal. Every, every space is so beautifully woven and considered i mean it's so funny because you've talked to my my favorites are olsen conduct who you've talked to yeah you know but from a tectonic kind of gears and parts and movable things kind of yeah. way right um not well but he has some really great uh, houses that are very grounded in the stone and in concrete also yes yeah but heather wick heather wick is an artist but like on such a scale i mean mm. it is just you know, and then there's Diller, Scafidio, Renfro. I mean, like, is that, you, you know who I'm talking about? The, yeah. the people, God, they're just insane as well. But yeah. I no, think, I, I also think, you know, like people like Calatrava, who, you know, like, again, oh. it just, it takes you into another realm of possibility of what, how architecture can be in a landscape and how it can belong and how it can change and lighten the mood. Or, you know, I, I think of the, in New York City, you know, the Oculus, I think it's called, is when you stand there, you just go, wow, this is, it is something else. It is something else. It's. Have you ever stood in a space that made you cry? The I bank. Know the guy. Only the, only the bank. The bank. <laughs> <laughs> I asked that. I was like, well, don't ask me that question. Um, <laughs> it's a really good question. I love that question. I don't think so, but there's certainly spaces where I've been and the emotion of moving through them has overwhelmed the analytics running in my head. So oh, when when I when I do things like, you know, take people on archie tours or if I go on them myself and go on these journeys of discovery. I'm expecting, you know, to be wowed and shocked and awed and all these things. And something that I really love doing is, so you have an initial response. And I'll give you the example. Like when we go to um, Falling Water, you don't go to Falling, you can, but you don't go to Falling Water once if you do it the way I do it. You go to Falling Water once in the in the afternoon. So you turn up, you go, and you get the shock of, wow, what is this place about? But your sensory overload is so high if you're, you know, in this business, your analytics are running so hard that 
you're kind of trying to gather too much in one time. So you go in the afternoon or, you know, late morning, something like that. And then you go away and we have a little program where we go and we stay stay with some other Frank Lloyd Wright spaces and stuff around us. And then we come back and we do an in-depth tour the next time. So we do a, and but we come back in the morning and then you can stay in the gardens and around the house. You might not be able to stay in the house all that time, but there's plenty of other things to see. And so then we stay and observe it really from the outside a hundred times over and experience it from, but that second time is like when you go back to a restaurant where you had this amazing meal and you go back and have it again, your expectations are all already somewhat filled, but then you get that second look, you get that depth, you get to experience it in another level and you drop into it. And I certainly know that there's been homes, Falling Water being a great example of that, and other homes that I've been in and buildings that I've been in where I retrace my steps. I want to experience it again, but without the shock or without the overwhelm. I want to I want to experience it and then really let it soak in. And I like to go into a space and prep my mind before and in prepping my mind before, I want to be working with my alpha thinking or my alpha mind as opposed to my beta mind. So we operate in beta most of the time. I want to work, move into alpha, which is my subconscious. What is it seeing? What is it hearing? What is it absorbing? And I don't have to be fully conscious of that, but I want to get to that quieter space. And so that's what I always get to do on the second time. I'll try and do it on the first time, but on the second time, I really get to drop in. And I do the same if I go to a site for to build, you know, a new home or even a renovation. I go, I do the same. I go, I got to drop into the space and feel the energy of the land and feel the energy of the moment, as well as all the things that I'm not consciously able to take in because it's all so new. So I do find myself doing that. I'll do a retrace of my, almost my exact steps because of the fact that I want, I want that feeling again, but I want more. I want more. Yeah, I want more. Yeah. So it's, I suppose in a sense, it's a method of understanding and stuff, but I do, I've got places where I'm like, whoa, what just happened to me? Because the emotional overwhelm of the space is so great. Um, it, the, the last time it happened to me was I was on a, a architects marketing Institute trip to Barcelona mm-hmm. and we went into the Gaudi's cathedral and it was, there was so much to see and it's so stunning. And it's, we had a guide who was fantastic and it was just this, how do you take time in the space when it's, you know, you, you, you're under some sense of time pressure. And a couple of days later, we went back and we went to mass in the, the morning mass. Not all of us, a few of us did. Mm-hmm. And not that I was, you know, so like welded to the mass, going to it for mass. But what I was welded to was this is the experience the building was built for. Right. That's the function. Uh-huh. And in the 
first time I saw it in the afternoon and the second time I saw it in the morning. And the way Gaudi set it up was so that the light would be completely different in the building on either side, either time of the day. And getting to experience that and again, drop into it and experience the building in its function and what it was designed to do. Right. That was, that was really special as well. Yeah. Awesome. And then otherwise I looked at around it from the outside a heap while I was there, but those two experiences inside it, and I had been many, many years ago as well, but of course it was far more completed now, but it was breathtaking, like yeah. just breathtaking. You can't get it out of your mind. Right. Mm. Right. Do, have you been in one that makes you cry? I have, but you know, your your answer kind of clarified a lot for me, I think, because I have been in La Sagrada Familia from the outside once and then on the inside on a separate trip. And I had the same experience. I was just overwhelmed. So I think the one that did make me cry is because it was a singular moment. I is La, Ch- La Chapelle or Saint Saint Chapelle in Paris. Uh it's actually across the street from Notre Dame on the island. And that, it's just that tiny little church one that has all the stained glass. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. I stood in the middle of it and I don't know if it was the proportions of it or what. And I looked up and I started tearing up. I was just, I was just blown away. But like when you were talking about it just now, I think it's because there was something about the singularity of that moment. Like there wasn't, mm. it wasn't too much. It wasn't like, I mean, I know what you're saying. La Sagrada Familia. I don't know where to look. Yeah. I don't know where to look. I'm blown away on on so many fronts, structurally or ornament, like spatially light, like the whole thing is like a some sort mm-hmm. of sci-fi archetypal beyond Lord of the Rings thing, yeah. right? It's yeah. Huge, right? But in some in La Chapelle or Saint Chapelle, I walk in and I knew the stained glass was going to be beautiful. I I knew it. Uh-huh. And the portion of the space is is attenuated and 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 amazing. But looking up, standing in that space, as my eyes scan up the height of those onto the ceiling, I started tearing up in the middle of that space. And it, I, I think it's because it wasn't too overwhelming. It was just that it was just that one. That moment. singular piece. I think that's that, a really distinctive point to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I know that I know the that little church. Mm-hmm. When I first ever went to Paris, I went in there and I was in Paris for five days or six days it must have been six nights and my girlfriend and I and we went where we stayed was very very close to Notre Dame or Notre Dame and we went there every day we went to we went to mass there as well not that we're either of us were religious but we went to math mass there and to see it being used as it as it could be and we did the we went into the building every day as we passed. Wow. So we'd just take ten minutes, fifteen minutes, and we'd go in and we'd just look around and we'd find something else to look at. And we'd light a candle because, you know, there's awesome. that thing. So we just did that consistently. That's awesome. That's Crazy, awesome. huh? Yeah. yeah. Dulcie, what a beautiful conversation. Absolutely. I feel entertained. <laughs> yeah no that was fabulous thank you so much for making the time i really really enjoyed it all right richard's magic arrows is brought to you by the architect marketing institute clean simple sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem 
Now, I know fee pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.